Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. Hi, this is Lisa, uh, and I have a returning guest with me here today. I have uh, Tim Rooney. Say hi, Tim. Hi, Tim. <laughs> and Tim, I, this is—I think it's your second time on the show, right? Yeah. Yes. Does it this is. Sound right? Yeah. We've recorded with each other a couple of times because I've been on your show as well. So to me, I'm like. I know we've recorded more than once, but I feel like it's your second on this show. Yeah. Yes, you're correct. Uh, the first episode uh, was back at the end of 2017 when we did Prisoners. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, I want to thank you so much, Tim, because you filled in at like the last moment for me. I had another episode lined up tonight uh, and it did not work out. And so I reached out to Tim and I was like, hey, Tim. Can we talk about this movie that I watched yesterday for the first time ever, by the way? Um, and you said yes. And so I just kind of wanted to give you a quick shout out for that. I really, really appreciate you taking time out of your day to do this. And with that said, uh, what movie are we talking about today? It's no problem whatsoever. Like uh, we had spoke before we actually hit record, like I had nothing going on. So it was just like, <laughs> you know what, like this is just perfect because like I said, like, all right, I'm doing laundry and I'm watching reruns of episodes of Lone Earth I've seen a million times over. So it wasn't inconvenience <laughs> to me whatsoever. And we're talking about 1971's Duel, directed by Steven Spielberg. Yes. Um, so I, I went ahead and admitted right off the bat that I had not seen this movie. So I, I know you mentioned before we started recording that killer car movies are kind of your thing. Um, and I 100% respect that. I, I know my husband, he's a big car guy and he's seen every car movie and he's always trying to get me to watch car films. And so, uh, you know, for some reason, that's just never really been my genre, but I've been kind of, you know, discovering some some old classics recently. So, you know, after uh, I had watched Death Proof the other day, I was like, you know what, I'm in the mood. I want to see more. And so, uh, you know, I ended up watching this and I uh, wanted to ask you, uh, when was the first time you saw this movie? I It is actually a really interesting question because I'm not 100% sure when I first saw it because <laughs> it was around that time where I was just like getting more and more into Steven Spielberg and realizing he is my favorite filmmaker and he's the filmmaker most responsible for me wanting to be a filmmaker and trying to trying to photograph movies like how he does. And so I remember it must have been like I was looking up like, because I used to rent from, I still do rent from my local library uh, uh, pretty regularly. And it was like Steven Spielberg's title. So I'm just going down all the titles and a duel popped up. And I believe I asked my mom about that. And she had remembered that she had watched the original broadcast in 1971 and really enjoyed it. And so she recommended me to rent that. And I did. And I believe I may rent it on VHS before I saw it on DVD. And since it had become just 
enamored with it. I, I will put a spoiler warning here. It's in my top 10 favorite Steven Spielberg movies. So that uh, is if, awesome. if you don't want, if you want me to bash on the movie, I'm like, well, you caught the wrong guest. I'm just going to gush about it for how long <laughs> we talk. Well, that's excellent. Um, you know, Duel is one of those movies that I'd heard of. It's on my radar. It's like it comes up anytime you talk about sort of killer car films. Um, but it's just not something I'd seen. So I didn't even know before I watched it that it was originally a TV movie. So that was interesting to me. And it's Steven Spielberg's first movie. Um, so that, you know, those couple of facts right there, you know, definitely had my interest peaked right away. Oh, totally. And the fact that like, as we, cause we'll kind of get into the kind of restrictions that was put on him in order to make the movie is even more fascinating and what he had to do to achieve to make this movie. And it's kind of funny. Like when you look at, I guess maybe it's unfairly. I look at other TV movies and I'm like, well, yeah, you had an XYZ kind of budget and yet it does not look as impressive as Duel. Like maybe I'm being unfair in that comparison, but I just feel like, all right, if you can do this, like what else can, what other can like made for TV movies can be? I mean, like the other, like most famous, like, TV movie that I really enjoy. I, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. I think it's the, um, uh, it's, it's maybe the, the day after, not the day after tomorrow, but it's about a nuclear holocaust. And it's like one of the scariest movies I ever saw. And it was one of those things that's like, it's terrifying. And I'm like, that's the other kind of like major TV movie that I uh, extremely respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just not something that I expected. I don't feel like the quality of the movie looks or feels like a tv movie i i think he really went above and beyond with what he had to work with and that's why it led to such an incredible career uh as you had already mentioned uh, it came out in 1971 it's an hour and 29 minutes um i think it's like the perfect time too for like the content of the film but i'm gonna go ahead and read the synopsis really quick before we go further it's really fast because i don't want to give too much away i want to dive into it but um uh, <laughs> Basically, a business commuter is pursued and terrorized by a malevolent driver of a massive tractor trailer. I mean, I feel like if you didn't know that going in, <laughs> like, I think you could tell from, like, the cover of this movie what it's about. But it's a guy being, you know, followed and uh, a guy in a, a, a giant truck trying to kill a guy in a red car basically yeah like, i mean <laughs> like you could say like it's not it's, a complex plot <laughs> no but it's also the same thing that you could say the thing about like cujo it's like all right so two exactly. people caught in a car being stalked <laughs> by a dog like those things could be technically short films and yet there's in both movies both examples there's enough tension to build it to be a feature-length movie Mm -hmm, exactly. Well, with that in mind, um, I have a couple quick facts I want to throw out there. And then if you want to throw in a couple afterwards, too, um, we'll we'll just kind of run with it. Uh, so the, the first quick fact that I have that totally shocked me, honestly, was that it was shot in 12 to 13 days, uh, the entire film. And that was because I know Steven Spielberg was only given 10 days to shoot the film. And he went over a couple of days, but still 12 to 13 days. That's not a lot of time, right? No, especially for how many setups that he has and how long it would take, especially to reset everything with the car and truck. It, I think it's really impressive. And even something that Spielberg submitted, like I couldn't do that today if I had to, if like you put a gun to my head, I don't think I can do that. But somehow I had the gumption and the uh, cojones to be able to try and pull something off of that for ABC. Right. Um, 
And also I had that according to Richard Matheson, which is the writer, we'll get more into him later, he was inspired to write this original short story duel after an encounter with a tailgating truck driver on November 22nd, 1963, the day John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And I thought that was just such a cool Easter egg, um, you know, not Easter egg, but that was such a cool fact that that happened, uh, that that's kind of ha- happened on the same day, you know, just pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, I guess a lot of people's lives were definitely affected in one way or the other because of the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. And just it's something like it, it, it's one thing, like, I guess, like for like creative people, like anything like that's why, like, people say, like, you want to be a creative person. Don't just watch movies. Don't just read books, like try to experience everything you can and just absorb mm-hmm. everything. And it just it'll be filtered throughout your process. And obviously, the Kennedy assassination uh, turned uh, had the gave Matheson this idea, which I find really fascinating. Yeah, he was, you know, he had like a really bad encounter with a truck driver. And then, uh, I mean, it sounded like it was pretty bad to where his his uh, friend like spun out and like they felt like they almost died. And then uh, Richard Matheson just kind of jotted down an idea on the back of an envelope, you know, which it, th- I think that's a good reminder, like try to write down ideas that you have in the spur of the moment. You know, you don't want to lose them. You don't want to forget them. Yeah, I, I can I kind of attest that to myself. I mean, there's so many times, I, I mean, like my, my desk is cluttered right now, but there's like envelopes, there's receipts with sprinkles of ideas, there's sticky notes sprinkled with ideas, even like just bullet points because I'm like, all right, I want to write this down. I do not want to forget it because I feel like this could turn to something later on. So I totally get where Matheson said, like, I need to write this down because I don't want this idea to get away from me. Exactly. And uh, let's see, another, some of them I have kind of sprinkled throughout here, but another fact that I really liked was that the, uh, the, they use the camera car from Bullet for this movie, which I feel like that's something that kind of stood out to me. I I really felt that it looked like, like I was saying earlier, the movie really seems to feel like a, like not just a made for TV movie, but like a real film. So um, it would make sense that they would have such like high caliber equipment. And I just thought that was really neat. Yeah. And I think it kind of makes it dynamic. And I know that's something that Spielberg had said is that like how he would try and get coverage is like, even though like he usually shoots one camera, he knew he had to use multiple cameras for a setup because of the, mm-hmm. the schedule he had. So like the idea would be like, all right, we have five cameras on this side of the hill where the cars go from right side of the screen to the left side of the screen. And we'll take the cameras to the other and they'll have all five cameras be a different focal length. So we can always cut to this footage if we want to. We go to the other side of the, of the, the road, have the cars go back in the opposite direction. So yeah, we have 10 setups and uh, just a little bit at a time, but you sprinkle inside all these insert stuff that's done on this car that was used for bullet to make it more dynamic and get really low and very close. So, so it becomes a heavily more intense, especially the stuff with the truck when it's really low and just looking up to it. So the truck, even though it's as big as it already is, it looks even more massive because of that. Mm-hmm. And and that low angle makes uh, it seem like it's going a lot faster than it is as well. Oh, yeah. And like, because like you think of like how you do it with like certain lenses, like you think of if you watch, say, um, say if you're watching football and you have like that kind of cable cam that, that's above the players as they run up and down the field use a wide lens because you're going forward and backward across that axis they look faster however if you have a camera parallel with it and you use something what they call a longer lens or a telephoto lens so it compresses the space between the subject and the background they look like they're going a lot faster the same thing you'd say you look at uh the the chases in terminator 2 when john connor's on the motorcycle and he's being chased by uh, the t-1000 the truck whenever the camera's mm-hmm. in front or behind them 
the camera's wide, but if the camera's parallel with them, it's usually a longer lens shot, so it makes it look like they're going a lot faster because the background is zipping by out of focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and for someone that is not necessarily familiar with those camera tricks, I mean, it just looks really fast to them, you know? Yeah, it just it, in yeah. a subconscious level, it does that to you. Right, right. Well, I think, you know, for me, probably my biggest section of notes is about Steven Spielberg, obviously, since uh, it's the first film he made, essentially, and it led to everything that he has done going forward, um, including recently Ready Player One, which I still haven't seen, by the way. <sighs> so <laughs> I know, I know, I, I'm behind. But uh, I, I feel like you're going to master this, but um, are you ready for a, a pop quiz? Oh, I didn't know I was, I was, this going to be kind of curriculum involved with this uh, podcast, but you know what? Yeah, that was intentional for you not to know that. Uh, well, <laughs> I guess we have a pop quiz, but all right, uh, far uh, away. Okay, okay. So I every time we do a Steven Spielberg movie, I ask this question. And I think this is the – I was thinking about today, I think this is the fifth movie because we did uh, the um, Indiana Jones trilogy, uh, the, or the first three. You know, you're uh, right. This trilogy, there is yeah, one okay. more. We, some people <laughs> don't accept it. I, I have a soft spot for some moments of that movie, but we'll get into that later. Yeah, yeah. And then we also did Jurassic Park. So that's four. So this would be the fifth movie. But every time I've had someone on, even if it's the same guest, I ask them this question. So as of 2018, uh, Steven Spielberg's directed 11 films that were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. Can you name all 11? Um, I will give it a shot. Okay, go for it. Uh, Close Encounters to the Third Kind. Let me see. Mm, nope, doesn't look like it. Oh, well. All right. Uh, I would have thought that too, though. Yeah, okay. E.T. Yes. Uh, Saving Private Ryan. Yes. Schindler's List. Yes. Um, is Jaws nominated? Yes. Okay. Um, Lincoln. Yes. Munich. Yes. That's six. Um, Empire of the Sun. Nope. The color purple. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's harder than you would think it is, huh? Yeah. No, I'm just saying. Like so many movies. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um. Um, you're at seven right now. Yeah, you got four more, and some of them are like big ones. Yeah, so I'm trying to think. Like, um, Amistad. No. Well, well I enjoyed Amistad. Um. <laughs> oh, Bridge of Spies. Yes. Um, The Post. Yep. All right, it's two more. I got um. You're missing a big one, man. I know. Like, all right. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. <laughs> okay. Oh, jeez. That man. Um, yeah, because my last crusade poster was like glaring at me for uh, at me while <laughs> I was course. thinking about that. Um, so you're only missing one more. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought this was nominated, to be honest. But I haven't seen it, so. It's not the terminal, is it? Nope. I don't know. I, you, you stumped me there. No worries. It's Warhorse. Oh yeah. <laughs> See, it's like one of those that you kind of forget about. So yeah, I, I don't blame you. It's okay. It has a few sequences I like it because 
Spielberg's one of the masters of action. And I love like the, mm-hmm. the no man's land sequence with the horse. I, I find really entertaining. Mm-hmm. Well, so out of these 11, only one has actually won. What movie is that? Schindler's List. Yep. I remember he famously lost to Shakespeare in Love with Saving Private Ryan, which I'm still bitter about myself. <laughs> Understandable. I mean that you're bitter, not that the other one won. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, good job, though. You got 10 out of 11. Woo. And you got the bonus question. So you're the first one to do that. Oh. Being a big Steven Spielberg fan, I can I can see why. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So, sorry to catch you off guard, but it's just too fun. It's hard to resist asking that question. No, so. I actually really enjoyed <laughs> that. Thank you. Good, 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 good. Okay. Well, no more, no more quiz questions going forward. Uh, the only other thing that I, I mentioned. I mean, we've talked about Steven Spielberg so much on this show, so I can't like give too many facts without sounding repetitive. But um, go back and listen to those other episodes, guys. Seriously, they're all good. Um, I think those are some of the best. So, so go back and listen to them. Uh, but, uh, you know, I had a note here that he was irked uh, when the footage from his movie Duel was used as stock footage in an episode of The Incredible Hulk in 1978. Uh, but since Universal Studios owned the rights to both The Incredible Hulk series and the filming of Duel, uh, taking legal action was not possible. However, he subsequently updated his contract to include a clause that would pro- protect his future material from being used as stock footage. Huh, that's really yeah. interesting. It is, but you know, it, it happens kind of a lot, right? Because I mean, there there were scenes from like The Shining used in Blade Runner, um, in like the uh, the theatrical cut, um, and, and things like that. So I mean, it, it does happen, but it's just interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, like I, I guess like the kind of like the more modern thing of stock footage I'm thinking of right now is that Michael Bay has used himself as stock footage in some of his other movies. I think oh, really? one of his Transformers movies used this like footage from the island. And even when I was in the theater, I was like, wait, that looks familiar. And I, I, and I couldn't put my finger on it right away. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So I think sometimes, you know, that happens. You have like a little sense of deja vu. It might be stock footage. <laughs> you huh. never know. Um, I also read that he cared more about the color of the car than the type of car that they used in the, uh, in the movie. And I think it's mentioned, we've referenced a couple times. You sent me a clip for, uh, um, it's actually on YouTube and I'll include it in the show notes, but the, uh, a conversation with Steven Spielberg, you know, about duel and there's three parts to it. It's really great information about the movie, uh, from Steven Spielberg himself. But I, I, I noticed that he, he kind of mentioned that on there and I had read that too. Um, I, I feel like he's like me. I'm like, I, I, I would care more about that like how it looks and the fact that the car is red helps you distinguish it from the background because it's all like grays and beiges. I mean, it's the desert. So I think that was like a really good choice, but I would have like assumed that he cared about the model of car, but I, you know, he didn't. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, cause I think it, an aesthetic point of view, it really does. And I think his, his point was, was right. That it pops out of the background, no matter where they are in this, the movie, Mm-hmm. Even the truck kind of blends in with the background because it's all dirty and smudgy and it's all covered in like soot. And so the car just really pops whenever it's on screen. Right, right. And and then the uh, the truck, he, he picked one that um, I guess looked a little bit more vintage because it kind of had more of a face um, instead of a, a more modern truck. And I thought that was interesting, too. Yeah, and because it like how we say it, it looks like it has a snout. It looks like it's it's ready like to gobble up the car if it if it could. I mean, there's even posters of the movie 
duel where somebody's like made a mouth on the grill of the truck mm. itself and look like it's trying to eat the red car. So I think, I think, it, I think the audience members and the people who worked with it, I uh, got what he was getting with when having that design of a truck to do uh, this movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, the other, I had a couple more quick facts, but one of them was, um, one of my favorite facts about the film was that he used the same sound in Jaws when the shark dies as he does in this movie when the truck dies. I mean, I guess the truck doesn't die, but it plunges off the, the cliff and it's, and has that same like monster sound. And, um, he recycled that later in Jaws and I really like that callback. So. Yeah, and because they like he's because it's because of duel. I think it's why he got Jaws. Like, even though Sugarland, yes, exactly, yeah. So he had made Sugarland Express in between for the same producers, uh, Zanuck and Brown, who would go on to produce uh, Jaws. But like, duel has four letters. Jaws has four letters, and like they're both kind of leviathans that he that are destroyed at the end. So he thought it was a nice callback to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I really liked that. Um, he had a lot of those. Like, if you guys go back and watch those clips that Tim sent me, uh, that comes up a lot. Uh, you know, reusing scenes or reusing actors um, to sort of pay homage to what came before uh, that he did and how he got where he is. And I thought that was a really cool part of that. Which is funny um, when you put that in the context of Ready Player One. Yeah, right. That's true. <laughs> I'm just sitting here and it's like, oh, yeah, that makes so much sense now because it's. <laughs> There's so much callback to 80s pop culture and the culture that he mm-hmm. kind of yeah he kind of defined it yeah 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 I mean he he was a big part of that I mean when when they when uh, you watch like Stranger Things you know um, and and they talk about what that's inspired by he's in the top like three you know it's John Carpenter uh, Stephen King and Steven Spielberg there's a lot of his his work in that and so it makes sense for him to direct Ready Player One and for it to be a callback to the time period that he helped shape cinematically, at least. Um, I also noticed uh, a really cool quote that I thought that Steven Spielberg had. He he talks a little bit about how once this movie got released in Europe, so it was on TV here, but then when it went to Europe, it was released in theaters. And, you know, it's kind of a straightforward plot, but there's a lot of ambiguity in it, right? You don't see the truck driver. Um, we don't know what his motive is. And I think because of that, you can kind of infer a lot and have your own take on what's happening and why. And that led to people really kind of reaching and having a lot of, you know, insight that they pulled away from the movie that Steven Spielberg didn't necessarily put in the movie. But I thought it was really cool that he said, you know, nobody ever sees the same picture or he said, nobody ever sees the same picture the same way. So it's like, that was kind of a reminder to him going forward that he would, he would think about film from that approach, you know, not necessarily being so technical, letting things sort of take on a life of their own and letting the audience kind of make their own decision. And I thought that was cool because I think that's a theme for me, at least in directors. I really like when they, when they do that. I was going to say, I'm like, wait, a director letting the audience make up their own mind about what they're feeling. So movies like that mm. reminds me of somebody. I don't know who, <laughs> but. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, I'm going to hold on to that quote for sure. I really like that part. Um, did you have any other things that you wanted to kind of add about Steven Spielberg? Well, the, at least the one thing is that is the closest, like, because there was a video, there's a video essay online called uh, why 
horror directors make the best blockbuster filmmakers. And because mm-hmm. you come from a perspective of being able to do horror, you can do spectacle because you know how to build tension. You know how to engage the audience in, in such a fantastic way. That's why you look at filmmakers like Spielberg. You look at Ridley Scott. You look at Peter Jackson. You look at Sam Raimi. They all came from horror or did horror, horror thematic movies before they did their, their blockbusters. And the, the video essay concentrates on Jurassic Park and specifically the uh, T-Rex paddock scene where the T-Rex breaks out and attacks the Ford Explorers. And within, within the context of Duel, this is like the closest thing to like almost like a slasher movie that Spielberg ever made. And it's very Hitchcockian right. in, its, in its very very uh, um, execution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like there, there was a part too in that interview where he was saying, you know, he didn't want to make a horror movie necessarily. Um, and it's not, but, but it's mainly just tension, you know, it's suspense. And like you said, very influenced by Hitchcock. Um, and, and that's really what you get here. And I, I personally think the best horror, even though he says it's not horror, I think the best horror comes from that place, you know, has that level of ambiguity, that, that level of tension, that that's when you're going to get like the best movie and i think that that like you said it gives you an insight into how that director works and i get i think it gives them the building blocks for different genres it's like if they can do that with this little budget accomplish so much you know what can they do if they had more and if it were a different genre you kind of see how they 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 grow from there right and they have like this and it obviously leads into jaws which he expands upon those kind of techniques with we keep, we don't see the shark because of technical issues as it's been famously documented and then i think like one of his closest other horror movies like you have poltergeist which he may or may not have directed with toby hooper toby hooper gets the credit and i think that's more toby than is steven mm-hmm. um i think war of the worlds is another one that's closest to a horror movie and it's not just from the tripods themselves, it's all the people that he, that Tom Cruise and his family have to interact with and try and survive. And I think that's a further, it's a further, like the techniques that were kind of, that he used in, in Duel are further expanded upon in those movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you, did you get a sense watching this movie that, like, I guess for me watching it for the first time, I was thinking that it seemed a lot more like artistic than some of his later stuff. Like, it's almost like the more, experience steven spielberg had the more technical his movies are and i kind of like like you know what i really like about jaws is just all the all the uh cutaways and different things that he just came up with while he was filming and i feel that way about this movie too duel because it's so new because he's so fresh he's so young um it just has a different feel to it than some of his later movies and obviously you're going to naturally evolve but i I felt like i kind of missed that about about his films and maybe i just haven't seen enough of his recent stuff to see that again but i felt like as he started to do more serious things like schindler's list and saving private ryan i don't really see that i guess like flashiness what, what do you think are you talking about like his stuff that seems very instinctual from him yeah I, I don't know it's like some some of the uh the shots that he does in this movie and like i said in, in jaws you know how there's like that famous scene in jaws where um, he used uh, people walking across the beach as a transition yeah. to from scene to scene. And that just looked so cool. And like he pretty much just came up with that while he was filming it. And I felt like this movie, Duel, had a lot of moments like that that were just really interesting, creative choices. And I feel that as he uh, honed his skills, I don't see that as often. Well, I can see that to a degree because you think of something like this and he versus a 
Lost World of Jurassic Park. Like, Lost World, like, yeah, people have made comments like, oh, it's kind of like him on autopilot, and you could <laughs> find, you could make an argument for that. I mean, sure, it has his spectacle moments, especially when the trailer's hanging off the cliff and Julianne Moore's on the glass as it's slowly cracking. Mm-hmm. But there's a moment here in Duel that uh, it's one of my favorite shots in all of Spielberg's filmography. It's when it's David Mann's coming around the bend of the road uh, on the highway and it's a really long lens shot. So he's like, he looks like he's not making any progress whatsoever. He stops and he, he like pulls the car to the side and like we zoom out and we're underneath the truck in the foreground and the truck is just waiting for him. I'm like something like that. Like you don't get to see that too often in a Spielberg movie these days. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not. I'm definitely not criticizing Spielberg. I mean, I, I I don't feel that I have the right to, especially when we've done now five episodes on him. I, I really respect him as a director, but it's it's just something interesting that I notice that um, you know as directors go on and as they get more and more advanced in their skill set, things like that can happen where you don't see as much uh, creative liberty as you did in their earlier stuff when they didn't know not to do certain things, I guess, if that makes sense. I can see like that you can make that same argument for another filmmaker that I know you enjoy, P.T. Anderson. You mm-hmm. say something like uh, Boogie Nights and how flashy that movie is. Then you say something like Inherent Vice, The Master, or Phantom Thread. Grand, they're very different movies and they're trying to do very different things. But it's photographed in a very different way. It's much more like, all right, we're going to be much more precise in the shots and everything like that. But you look at like all the montages in, P- in Boogie Nights, especially the second half in the 80s, where it's like it's barely hanging on because it's like, oh, we're going so much faster and faster. And like we have dolly shots. We have zooms in the dolly shots. And like the music is so overpowering. You feel like you're ready to have a breakdown by the end of the movie. Whereas mm-hmm. his later movies are like, all right, no, we're going to be almost Kubrick-like in their design, like we're going to be very precise yeah. and and everything's going to be perfect. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's just something I noticed. Like I said, I, I appreciate all of Steven Spielberg's films that I've seen. Me too. But, uh, but you know, it's just something that, that I that I noticed. Uh, I, always, I just kind of wonder, like, will he someday sort of make something bare bones kind of like that again. I think, I think that would be interesting to see, but I mean, he mentions in that, in that interview you sent me that, you know, he feels like he's a different person when he made this versus who he is now, uh, because as you grow, you change. And so he's not going to necessarily be able to channel himself as a 20 year old, you know, now, you know? Yeah. I mean, like it's all right. I've, I've had this conversation with many people like Spielberg definitely changed for several reasons in the 90s one like obviously like he became like he is obviously a father by this point but like having mary kate capture and having kids and then obviously making schindler's list his entire style and approach to filmmaking changed after the making of that movie i mean like you can, i don't think you, can, you can't help but being affected by that like that's why yeah. i think lost world and jurassic park are very different for numerous reasons one being dean cunny didn't come back to photograph it uh janice kaminsky who's photographed every Spielberg movie from Schindler's List onward. I mean, so that's another thing that's been very different because throughout his previous movies before that, he had various different cinematographers, and since Schindler's List, he's only had one. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I I'm, 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 have far too much useless information about his career stuff in my head, so... <laughs> no, it's useful now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, well, uh, I guess let's kind of transition, talk a little bit about Richard Matheson, who who wrote the, uh, the short story and uh, also helped write the script. Um, 
I, I really liked that. Uh, I had read that, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg got this idea because his uh, assistant had seen uh, the short story in Playboy and, and mentioned it to him and was like, hey, you should check this out. You'd really like it. And, you know, he did, of course. Steven Spielberg loved it. Um, and he, he also uh, really liked Richard Matheson's work on The Twilight Zone. So he was already a pretty big fan. Um, and that, that kind of perked my ears up. I like anytime I hear anything about the Twilight Zone because I'm a huge fan of that show. I feel like it's timeless and I could watch any episode right now. Um, I know that the biggest one they mentioned in that in that clip you sent me was uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man was kind of one of uh, Steven Spielberg's favorites. Um, and that, uh, you know, was it which network was it that was making this movie? Uh, ABC. Remember ABC? ABC. OK, I, I'm always afraid I'm going to get, say, ABC or NBC at the wrong Thing, so thank you. No problem. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah, they were already making this film, and Steven Spielberg had to kind of pitch himself for this project. But um, you know, th- they uh, they picked it up and they were working on it, and uh, and yeah, I just I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and I think the one thing with Richard Matheson, like he cemented himself obviously with short stories and with the Twilight Zone, writing arguably the most famous twilight zone uh episode or the the uh the 20,000 uh, nightmare 20,000 feet with william shatner oh yeah and so i mean obviously it's been parodied it's been remade in the twilight zone movie which spielberg did do a mm-hmm. segment with uh for but george miller did the uh remake george miller from the mad max movies and babe mm-hmm. to pay in the city um and so matheson obviously came from like all right we could tell a story in a in a finite amount of time. And especially that was incredibly important when he's doing a short stories and a twilight zone. And I think it's why this movie is so sparse with ideas. Not saying that's a bad thing. I think it's, it's too, it is very easy for a movie to be overlong and just like overstuffed. Like, and you just want to like, all right, can this end there? Like there's seldom times where you're like, all right, the movie ends. Like I wanted more. And I think that's a trip. That's a, I think we should attribute that to Richard Matheson's writing of the short story, then a teleplay, which Spielberg made into the movie. Mm-hmm. And I really like how you don't see the the driver of the truck. I think that's a really big selling point of this movie because it really makes you feel like it's the truck, even though you know someone's got to be in there because you never see them. And the fear of the unknown is so intense. And the fact that he wrote that into the story and into the script, I think that's a really big strength of the movie. And uh, I know I I watched also, there was a clip about uh, Richard Matheson sort of explaining the creative process of him writing the story. And he was saying that he's a very visual uh, storyteller. So even though he wrote it, um, you know, as a short story, he was thinking about how everything looked. He even like drove the route that he was thinking about. And then he incorporated what he saw into the story. So it would feel authentic. And that really helped Steven Spielberg being such a young director, so new, you know, really give him like a blueprint for how he was going to shoot everything. And he really gives him a lot of the credit uh, for how the the movie looks, the tone and, and that added detail of not seeing the driver. I mean, like the joke is, if it's not on the page, it ain't on the stage. And so, like, you can you can tr- you can you can make a bad movie out of a good script, but you can't make a good movie out of a bad script. And so, right. it always has to go back to the written word, despite how visually it looks or how great the acting is. If the story is terrible from day one, you're not going to be able to make a good story out of it. And I think that's just a another thing that we have to pay tribute for to Richard Matheson because of just being a talented writer. 
And to go back to what you're saying right, about, right. Uh, about like not seeing the driver is that I think it, it's scary in that way, just like how in Jaws you didn't see the shark for the most part. And also, we don't see the face of Michael Myers in Halloween. It's just a faceless shape. And like because the audience members will will fill it with their own imagination. Whatever they imagine is far scarier than what you can come up with unless you do something really unique mm-hmm. like the xenomorph in Alien. And so – or in like the creatures from the thing – so yeah and even then you know in alien you don't get a lot of the alien right because that's not scary if you see it all the time <laughs> no and like i mean even the scariest moment is when ripley thinks she's safe when she's on the escape pod and the alien's been part of the scenery the entire time but we just have not noticed it yet right right yeah it's like that that uh the fear of the unknown. I mean, that's just that's just scary. And and I think the strongest uh, suspense movies and the strongest horror films have that level of am- ambiguity to them. I know I'm, that's going to be my word. It's like every time I say ambiguity, take a drink. But <laughs> that's my word for this podcast. Um, but yeah, so uh, I want to talk a little bit, of course, about the main character, David Manning, who's played by Dennis Weaver, uh, pretty much handpicked kind of, right, for, from Steven Spielberg. He really wanted to use him. Uh, they actually had to shut down uh, filming McCloud, right, the show that he was on, uh, so that he could participate in this movie. Yeah, and I know like Spielberg's um, feelings for why he wanted to do it is because of he played the like hotel like owner or clerk in A Touch of Evil. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And if you haven't watched A Touch of Evil, I highly recommend it. I think it's Orson Welles' second best movie behind Citizen Kane, and it, like the kind of neuroticism that that um, that uh, Dennis Weaver brings to that role, he definitely brings it into this movie. And there's mm-hmm. a a book that I have called uh, Steven Spielberg, a retrospective. It's a like coffee table, like history with lots, with lots of photographs um, that my sister got for me for Christmas a couple of years ago. And during like kind of like the history on the making of duel, um, one of the first people they wanted was Gregory Peck. And Spielberg's like, no, because if you have Gregory Peck, it's no longer, Oh, it's not the everyday man. It's Gregory Peck. You need somebody like something akin to Jimmy Stewart in the movie, because otherwise like, oh, Gregory Peck, like, you, you won't feel worried for him. Like, oh, he's going to totally get out of it. But with somebody like Dennis Weaver, you're not going to feel, you know, like, like with Dennis Weaver, you're going to feel like, oh, he's going to be, he may not get out of this. But with, we have Gregory Peck from Killing Mockingbird, like, oh, no, it's going to be, he'll find a way to get out of this. Right, right. No, I, I completely agree. It has to be an everyman. It has to be a guy that, you know, is like the one in the movie where he's married, has, a, you know, a couple kids, and this is not something he's equipped for. Otherwise, we'll feel that, you know, he could easily go up against this guy if it was somebody that was, you know, very handsome and imposing, and we would be like, oh, that guy can handle himself. But because he looks like a dad, <laughs> you know, it that makes the movie a little bit more exciting. Totally. I mean, like, yeah, Charles Bronson in the car, like, all right, this truck right. driver's he, the truck driver should be running. And, and yeah, instead. exactly. <laughs> in the way that you don't want to see the truck driver because it humanizes him, you know, th- this guy, we need to see that he is extremely human and vulnerable and be able to put ourselves in his shoes, you know, because I feel like I would be about as sure of myself as he is in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And, so. and like one of the things that's kind of expand upon because it was a 74 minute movie for the movie of the week. And it was expanded upon for when it was sent to Europe for a theatrical release. That's right. And yeah. One of these scenes that was added was the phone call home to his wife. And so 
which I think is really important because it kind of like you listen to the radio conversation that he's while he's driving. You have the the person on the radio talking to the census taker, like I'm the man of the family, but I'm not the breadwinner. I don't feel like I'm the man of the house. And so, and like a lot of people have interpreted, like, oh, this is his internal monologue. This is how he really feels. And even mm-hmm. and even man makes a joke, goes like, all right, you're the boss. He's like, not in my house, I'm not. And when he talks to his wife, that she kind of like puts him down because he didn't stand up to a person who uh, was kind of being a bit. Uh, I guess inappropriate to his wife. Yeah, yeah. She she he makes a pass at her at a party, and he doesn't uh, he doesn't intervene. Yeah, like yeah. almost like in like he's like he wanted me to pick a fighter, like almost like George McFly in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. She's like, you didn't do anything about it, and he's like, ooh, and you know that's foreshadowing for he's gonna have to do something about this other truck. <laughs> right. And now this magic man getting home, and like the the guy being over the house, and him just clocking the man they're like all right get out of here and he's a totally different person now after dealing with this experience <laughs> i feel like so i mean i i think it would definitely uh be a life-changing situation <laughs> well uh so the next part that i want to talk about here is l- let's go through a couple of your favorite scenes i mean we could go through this beat by beat but i think you know it's only an hour and a half movie and we kind of know what's going to happen in the end, you know, it's not a, a long, complicated plot. But are there some scenes that really stand out to you that are your favorite? Well, obviously, I think one of the parts that I really enjoy is obviously the like first the first initial chase where the truck overtakes man in front of him. He waves, he gives him the like wave to go around him, and he almost goes ahead on collision with another car. And I realized mm-hmm. something about the set pieces in here and something that plays into Spielberg's filmography overall, he rarely repeats himself with the mm. set piece. Like, you like, okay, yes, the, the truck chases the car. Yes, that, that is the basis of it. However, there are different ways he does about it. Like, we obviously have that moment we have at the end where he goes up the mountain thinking he's going to get away from it, but the radiator hose bursts. And so his car is overheating. And, or you think of when... Uh, we have he's parked in front of the train, waiting for the train to go past, and the truck's trying to push him onto the tracks. Uh, yes, like the truck is trying to kill him. That is the basis of it. However, he'll make something really unique about this set piece to make it stand out. I realized that about Spielberg, especially with uh, Saving Private Ryan. Yes, we are making a war movie where we have the Allies shooting against shooting at the Nazis, but each set piece is very distinct and very differently and told in a different way. And something that I, I've noticed that throughout the rest of his filmography, and another scene that I really enjoy is obviously when he's in the cafe and he's trying to figure out is one of the people inside the cafe the driver because the the truck is parked across the street from it. That's the part. That scene in the cafe is probably my favorite, and I think that's the part to me that seems the most Hitchcock, especially like the way that they zoom in on people's faces and his inner monologue and all that. I I think that's just such a great intense uh, scene. And I really liked when I was watching the, that, that clip you sent me or those few clips when he talks about how he films the way he, you know, uh, the main character staggers into the restaurant and follows him all the way to the bathroom to wash his face and follows him all the way to his seat. and Everyone's looking at him and just that whole thing is just so intense and just done so, so well. Um, I think that uh, the Dennis Weavers, um, you know, his, his facial expressions really, really sell it. 
Oh, for sure. And, uh, yeah. and like Spielberg is known for being able to do a long take. And I love how it's all done in one shot. When he enters the cafe, goes through the diner, goes to the bathroom, washes his face, and then comes all the way back to notice the truck is parked there since he's been in the bathroom. Right. And like, you know, I, again, this is the first time I've seen it all the way through. Although as I watched it, I felt that I had seen clips before probably. But um, that particular scene, you know, I kind of, I theorized in my head. I'm like, he's not even in there. You know, that would be too easy. <laughs> um, and, and I just, I love the fake out uh, when that guy leaves the diner and goes behind the uh, the truck and, and, and leaves out of a different truck. Yeah. The one that he screams at. Yeah. And obviously, like, he, he confronts him thinking that he's the driver and he ends up making a fool of himself and getting into a scuffle because of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can just see that, um, you know, it's really breaking him down. It's wearing him down. I mean, the the driver of the truck could really get rid of him at any time, right? I mean, he could. He is in a much bigger vehicle. He has several opportunities to kill him, but he just enjoys torturing him. Oh, yeah, he's totally playing with his food, and it's the... The I say the I'm trying to think of the expression that was that the the thrills in the chase rather than the capture. I'm trying to think what the hell it is, but yeah, he's more enjoying the moment rather than getting to the destination. That's what it seems like the truck driver mm-hmm. is trying to do when going after uh, Dennis Weaver. Yeah, and how do you explain that? You know, his his entrance, uh, he almost crashes, and then he comes into the the diner, and I mean, now everyone already thinks he's crazy, right? And so he doesn't do himself any favors while he's in there. He's not good at articulating what's happening to him, and um, it's just it's just a great scene, and and it also felt very Twilight Zone, I think, in that moment too. Oh, because you feel like you're the only yeah. sane person in an insane world, but mm-hmm. then you have the the reverse question are you the crazy person amongst the people that actually got a grip on things right exactly and and i completely agree with what you're saying uh about uh the other scene as well that you know we keep seeing uh, a car chase throughout the movie um a duel but it, it changes it evolves throughout the movie with different different scenarios that give you different stakes and I think that that's so true because really this movie could be pretty boring, right? It could just be him getting in the car, the truck almost hitting him. And especially the scenery of the film, it's just in the desert. It's not super exciting. So the way that he's able, Steven Spielberg is able to take these different scenarios using what's going on um, along that route is, is really fascinating. Right. And I remember I left the video somebody made about Spielberg's, um, action set piece i left it in the i love that movie uh, podcast uh, facebook group it's like how he the video essay like authored says like spielberg is known for creating great hooks to his action set pieces and it goes back to even to hear how he makes it even interesting where we're like oh we have these specific moments where dennis weaver gets ahead he gets ahead of the car the first time he really speeds that he goes off the road he goes off that little path and gets ahead of the truck and you're like okay you have that moment but then it, it, it escalates more and more as the the speeds get faster and faster and the truck is not letting mm-hmm. up. And But we had the reprieve in the cafe before because otherwise it could be exhausting. I know a lot of people say right. Mad Max Fury Road is exhausting. Like it can't be, but <laughs> there are reprieves in that movie despite it always being on the run. Right. It's an action film, but it's got a really great story. It's cinematically beautiful. Um, and like you said, there's definitely moments, lulls in the film. So I I agree with you there. Yeah. That's another movie I'd love to talk about. Oh, I mean, I 
gosh, she's about to move for hours, but we should try to stay on topic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, what, what's another great scene that you really like? Um, is when he finally decides to call the cops and he makes a stop mm-hmm. at the gas station and the driver realizes what he's doing and Weaver is in the phone booth and he's in the foreground facing us and his back is to the truck. He's unaware of the fact that the truck is circled around and he's coming towards him and it's at the last moment he dies out of the phone booth before he gets taken yes. out by the truck. I know, and I love the added detail of, like, the rattlesnakes and the tarantula. Like, it's just such a crazy scene. Um, But it's even more impressive when you see the behind the scenes because I really like the way uh, Steven Spielberg, you know, the way he shot it. And I liked all the safety stuff that he did to make sure that Dennis Weaver would be safe um, because I felt like he really spent a lot of time explaining, hey, we made sure there was no way this guy was going to get hurt because he did a lot of his own stunts and he wanted to be, you know, front and center and he didn't want to do any, you know, trick, you know, I guess like camera trick type stuff. It, it was all him. Uh, but we went out of our way to make sure that it would be easy for him to get on and off the set safely. And I don't know. I just appreciated hearing that. <laughs> yeah, because no movie is worth anybody's life. And exactly. they put somebody in harm's way just for a shot. I, I think it's just morally irresponsible. I may be kind mm-hmm. of uh, like holding up my nose at people, but I feel like, yeah, like, all right, it could be a little risky, but like, no, like you could like theoretically die with that. Like, I'm just saying it's not worth it in my opinion. No, and it speaks to his strength as a filmmaker to come up with a solution. You know, how do we get the shot that I want and make sure everybody's safe as opposed to this is an art, you know, you have to suffer for art, uh, do it. Because it's like, that's easy for you to make a decision for someone else. But, you know, I I really respect that that Steven Spielberg uh, took that responsibility on and just made sure he did his due diligence there. So that kind of made me like that scene even more. Totally. And it's like one phrase I've heard like from another filmmaker and says, pain is temporary, film is forever. Like if you're like in an uncomfortable situation, yes, and that's fine. (laughs) But like, I'm like, oh, yes, I want you to walk out on a plank on this boat and like you may fall in the water and we may not be able to save you like but i want you to do that because it'll look really good no it's not worth it we'll try and think of something else and be a little more creative about it right yeah 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 uh what's another uh, another great scene um another uh uh, school bus the school bus stop yes yes that's that that is such oh i love when all the kids spill off the school bus and he's like, no, 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 let's all go back on the bus. And the bus driver's like, no, kids, do what you want. You know, don't play in the street, but go for it. And I just love the way uh, he's not listening to him, how he goes and begs him to help him push the the school bus, which that that seems kind of unique now, right? Because cars can't really do that anymore. Well, you know? yeah. I, well, our bumpers don't really survive that, I don't think. No, but like bumpers, <laughs> like, like you see, bumpers still get like hooked under other cars and everything like that. But it's not to the degree where like it almost has like like spokes like on the bottom of it like it gets hooked under the the uh, bumper of the bus itself. For sure, and and bumpers themselves are a little bit more fragile. Like you wouldn't necessarily ask someone to do that nowadays no, to push your car. You know, the, the, but back then, yeah. The design of cars obviously changed from being from mostly metal to now mostly plastic, hard plastic, mm-hmm. and. I know we, things have become safer, safe, uh, blah, 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 words, uh, <laughs> no safer, but you think like I've rode around my dad's old like 80s Caprice and I ride around in my 2018 car. 
I think I'm, I'm a little bit safer in the Caprice because it's all metal. And like, if I get into a fender bender, I think I'm going to be a little bit more safer in this, or at least psychologically feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 now they have that like crumple technology. Um, but yeah, so I noticed that right away. I, I mentioned it. I was like, Oh, you can push another car. And uh, my husband was like, well, you used to be able to do that. I wouldn't want to try that with your bumper now. I'm like, yeah, I, did. I mean, it just stood out to me as something that has changed. And, um, and then of course, like you said, it gets stuck. And, and then that's, you know, that, that rig or not rig, but that, that, um, that truck is just waiting, watching them and then starts coming towards them. And, understandably the bus driver's not afraid only dennis weaver's afraid because the bus driver has no reason to think that that's anything but a car coming your way which i also thought was a cool moment because i do feel like we walk around with this feeling of just safety around cars and trucks forgetting what they could do right oh totally so i thought that was a really cool sort of psychological aspect of that scene is all those kids that guy just out there it's like you know they're they're kind of death machines <laughs> at any point it's a, a lot of metal coming right at you so I, I i like that i like that part and i love the moment like it's obviously built on the fact that we the audience and dennis we were know what the truck is capable of and you want to scream at the bus driver and the kids like no get on the bus get away from them get away from the truck but i think what punctuates is best is when it's the shot looking down the tunnel that's right where the truck is waiting and the truck driver turns on his headlights and it's punctuated by a music cue, which makes it even more frightening. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I I think it's just the the tension that scene, the buildup, it's in the payoff, it's just so, so good. <laughs> oh, totally. And and then of course like, it makes it even like almost ironic is that like the truck ends up pushing the bus. And it's like, no, of course, of course he would do that, you know, because he's got to make Dennis Weaver's character look insane. Yeah. So and make him doubt himself and make everyone around him doubt him. Exactly. I also like about that scene, too. Uh, just the last thought I had about it was the way the, the bus driver kind of convinces him to push the car. And he says, I, you know, it's going to get stuck. And then it does. And he's like, I told you this would happen. I think it's just another like character growth moment for him of um, sort of being pushed into situations he doesn't want to be or being talked over, um, being ignored. And he's like, you know, frustrated, like, I, I told you this would happen, you know? And so I think that that kind of sets him up for later in the film when he's finally just like had enough, you know? Oh yeah. And it's like the, the, the foundation of every conflict is intention and obstacle. Like, all right, Dennis Weaver agrees to push the, bu- push the bus. The car gets stuck. All right, that's an obstacle. And he has to try and get away from it and just try and get his car off it. Now the truck shows up and he has to get his car off before the truck gets him. And just the tension that's built out of really mundane things that happen that could happen every day makes this movie more terrifying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also like the scene uh, with the, the old couple in the car that he essentially almost gets killed. <laughs> yeah, just trying to ask for help. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I love the way they're just like talking over him and like, what are you talking about? And then like, no, just drive off. And it's I think it's very real because I think um, in that moment, if you were in that car, especially that, that little old couple, you know, it's not, I don't know, it's just somebody coming up to you and rambling incoherently is not going to make you want to help him or call the police or do whatever he says. It just makes you want to drive away, right? So I thought I thought that was pretty perfect. And I think it's cute that um, that Steven Spielberg later used those same actors in uh, Close Encounters. 
Yeah, and, yeah. And, and it's just, it's another hallmark of Spielberg things is that, like, overlapping dialogue, and I can totally see, mm-hmm. like, on the day, like, all right, just keep talking over him, like, do not let him get a word in so you can't hear him, and so that makes Dennis Weaver, the actor, have to sound louder and even more determined to get his point across, thus making him look crazier to this couple who have no context about the truck whatsoever. Right, right. Yeah, it's just it's just really good. And it's also like a little bit funny. So I think it um, before it gets really extreme again, it gives you like a little bit of a, a break to kind of laugh a little bit as well. You know, there's a little bit of humor in that scene to me. Yeah. And I think it's something that you actually kind of need in a situation like this. I think that's why the movie Speed works so well is because you have this high octane sequences of action. Yeah, it's punctuated by scenes of the bus, the bus uh, passengers being kind of funny with each other unintentionally or just reacting to the carnage that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. Uh, are there any other big scenes that stand out to you? Um, I think it, like, it has to be the end when you actually have the official mm-hmm. duel. When man, and I love one of the best things that Spielberg can do. Uh, like somebody, there's another. Uh, I watched a lot of video essays on Spielberg. Uh, if you can, you catching my drift here. Uh, <laughs> no, send send all of them oh, to me. I want to watch. Uh, there's a huge playlist that I have, <laughs> and one of them is like awesome. how Spielberg introduces characters called like fraction and action, and like how we see little pieces of an actor doing something that introduces them before we fully see them. Um, most notably, the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark. We see Indiana Jones from behind. We see him with the arrow. We see him with the map, and then. When the one of the the guys pulls a gun on him and Andy hears it, takes the whip, knocks it out of his hand. Then we introduce the huge close up of of Harrison Ford in duel. We have like when man's like, all right, enough of this. We see him put on his sunglasses. He buckles up. He turns on the car and then he races out in front of the the truck in intention to try and defeat him. And eventually, at the end, when he reaches the top of the hill, he props his briefcase. Um, on the uh, gas pedal, and he ran. He let, jumps out of the car at the right time, causing it to ram head on into the truck, and that eventually goes over the uh, the hill and over the cliff, and then it eventually destroys itself. Right, and uh, Richard Matheson had written that the the car like explodes. It had gas in it, and it in this one it didn't. Which I wondered if that was for budgetary reasons to not put gas in it, but also a great creative choice because. You know, I, I like the idea of there not being gasoline in it, like almost like the driver doesn't even have a job. He's just driving around like a crazy person with this empty tanker. And I just, you know, sometimes I just get tired of explosions. <laughs> like sometimes we see so many explosions, they start to lose their impact almost. And so it's refreshing to see this truck go over the side and not explode. That's fair. But as my male bravado, I'm always for explosions. <laughs> no, I understand where you're coming from. Like, yeah. like I did a review of, of Halloween 2 not too long ago, and there's two explosions in that movie. And like one from like an accident, and the other one is the intention that's the punctuation at the end of the movie. And I brought up the mm-hmm. fact, I think the first explosion makes the second one a little bit uh, kind of anticlimactic because we've already seen one mm-hmm. earlier. I mean, I think that's another reason why if you're going to have an explosion – like make sure it is the button to something. That's why you look at a lot of the early James Bond movies, like the opening set pieces of, of the movies, it usually ends with an explosion. And, and that's right. why it's the kind of, it, it's the perfect send off to the ending of that scene. Like the one that comes to mind is the opening to Octopussy with Roger Moore flying around in the little jet. And it ends up, he ends up 
guiding a missile into a warehouse that blows up the bad guys right before he says his one-liner and then it goes into the opening credits. It could have worked for this movie for Duel, like with the explosion, but I think there's something with the sand kicking up, mixture with the sound and the dinosaur sound effect that makes it really primal to me. Right, and and I like uh, in that clip. I keep referencing it, guys. Watch those clips. Um, but we just we just really liked it. Yeah, uh, but but you know, comparing that to the the last scene of Jaws as well, and just that visual, like you said, with the sand, um, similar to that visual with Jaws and the water. Uh, it just looks really, really good, and and coupled with that primal sound, it's just. It's it stands out in a way that I don't know an explosion would, because I feel like we all know what explosions look like, and they don't always stand out to us that same way. Um, I also thought it was interesting. You know, we know that the driver is dead because we see the blood, but he doesn't like go down there and go take a look at him or anything. You know? Yeah. I thought that was an interesting detail. I mean, you'd hope he's dead. I mean, we like. I mean, because otherwise, yeah. like, you see the drivers <laughs> climb out and go after him, like on foot. Like, I'm sure the movie would go on a little bit longer, but but I, I think if it was like a yeah, if it was like a real horror movie, it would end that way. <laughs> but since it's not, it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, like you say, like say somebody like James Cameron. Like, you think of Terminator One and Two and Aliens. There's a lot of false endings, thinking that we've destroyed the monster, but nope, it keeps coming back. And that happens in Aliens when we think, oh, we destroyed the factory. The queen's dead. No, the queen shows up and at the very end. Or we've blown up the Terminator. No, it's just a skeleton. We blew it up with a pipe bomb a second time. The top half is still coming after you. Like, in a traditional horror mm-hmm. movie, the monster would come back. But I think it, it, this movie kind of follows what, like, as Roger Corman says, the monster's dead and the movie. That's why yeah. movie ends so abruptly. I think that's why From Dust Till Dawn ends the same way. Be like, oh, we've killed all the vampires. Movie ends. Yeah, I love that too because you're just left with the credits rolling and him sitting there thinking about it and you're sitting there thinking about it because he is. And I, I think that that, that, le- that gives you a little bit of an open ending where you can kind of think about it. I didn't say ambiguity. I wanted to, but, uh, but yeah. So, you know, I think that because it's a little open-ended, I think that gives you time to process and think about it in a way that punctuating with, with the guy coming back somehow would not. So I, I think to me that can sometimes set something like this apart, you know, a little bit of a step above if you're, if you're left with some questions. Totally. I, I agree with that. No. Well, um, I'm going to get down to our last two questions here then already. This is like, this is like a quick episode, but you know, it is an hour and a half movie. I figured like, so. it, like it should be <laughs> a, a little bit shorter or the length of the movie. And, right. and in fact, I talk really fast. I know that. So that's oh, okay. It's a fast movie. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So here's my last two questions for you. Actually, I want to throw in a third one. You mentioned that. Uh, you know, this is in your top 10, Steven Spielberg. What is your top 10? Do you know it off the top of your head? I'm trying to remember because I did a podcast about it. I did a countdown with my friend Dakota not too long ago. Um, okay. Number 10 is uh, War of the Worlds. Okay. Uh, nine is Minority Report. Mm, I love that movie. Yeah. And do you know what's the best thing about that movie? What? You know, like how Spielberg has the kind of reputation that he has a lot of small C and like, the happy endings when the movie shouldn't really have a happy ending. Some people say like, Oh, he's too, he's too sentimental. And like his movies shouldn't, some movies shouldn't have a happy ending. Mm-hmm. 
the thing about Minority Report is that Philip K. Dick, his all of his writing is based upon what is reality, especially with Blade Runner, especially with like right. Total Recall, A Scanner Darkly, all of movies that have made adaptations based upon his work. In Minority Report, we have the warden talking about when Tom Cruise is being put into prison that when you're in the kind of the cryo sleep that he's in, it seems like all of your your dreams come true and everything and everything becomes perfect for you. How does Minority Report end? The bad guy dies, the um, the precogs are let loose, are, are, are released on their own recognizance. Tom Cruise gets back with his wife and they have another kid and everything seems to be hunky-dory. Now, I question, is that ending really, did Tom Cruise even leave the prison if he is still there or that ha- ending really happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's one of, it's one of my favorites too. I, I would definitely put it in my top 10. It's unique in his filmography and I feel like it's kind of underrated. Like I almost feel that people forget about it unless they're really into movies uh, or really into science fiction. And I, I just think it's an incredible film. Exactly. And, and I love how, like, I, there's a sci-fi weapon they use, like, the concussion gun that he has at one point. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's one of the most unique things I've ever seen in a movie. I feel like somebody should use that again for a TV series and make that more popular. Um, After Minority Report is uh, Munich. And the reason why uh, those three movies are there, and specifically, and somebody, uh, my friend Alan pointed out to me, all three of those movies are responses to 9-11 in different forms. Mm. Where Minority Report is the loss of personal privacy. Yeah. Um, the Obviously, more of the world has a lot of 9-11 imagery where people being vaporized and turned to dust and looks a lot like how the towers had fell. And there's the paranoia of people around you if you can't trust because there's a lot of, I guess you could say there was a lot of paranoia in America afterwards. Definitely. And then you have Munich where it is a a, a movie about a response team about of, of a terrorist act and they question the fact of their own morals. Like, are we doing the right thing? Is the idea to act in this way justifiable? And you say that mm-hmm. about America's tendencies afterwards. And Spielberg says- yeah. Like, I'm not saying that inaction is the only option. It's like, we just have to stop and have that question. Um, after that, uh, number six, I think, is Duel. I think that's where I had it on my list. Uh, okay. Five, I think, was Shameless List. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that I can watch that multiple times. As, as rough as that movie is, I, I, I almost get caught off in the the storytelling way, he how he's able to portray things and i think the first act is beautifully structured and how we're humanized with so many different characters and i think there is actually a lot of subtle moments of humor that the audience needs but because the second and third act becomes so dark you need that well i i think that you know tackling the holocaust has always been i mean there's always been a question of how do you possibly contain everything that happened you know, how, how do you put that into a film? How do you portray it? Should you? And I, I feel that Schindler's List handled that so incredibly well, you know, in, in a way that maybe we didn't think was possible because it's just it's just such an incredibly heavy topic. It's such a huge part of history that, that like I said, I, there have been people who said maybe we shouldn't even put it on film. And I think that the way that he handled it was just so masterful uh beautiful and and just it had the impact that it that it needed to definitely did i always say that 
the two most important movies that Spielberg made were Jaws because it launched the the blockbuster, the modern blockbuster, and mm-hmm. Schindler's List because of the cultural significance of the making of it. Right. And like all the good things have come out of it, like with like the preservation of history about the Holocaust. Right. Yeah. Um, after that, it's uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, my favorite Indiana Jones movie. Nice. And it, the reason being is because it's the, the father and son relationship. I agree. I, you know, it's really hard for me to pick out of those, out of the two uh, Raiders and that one. Um, I, I, they're almost one movie in my mind. It, it, sometimes I think that, uh, that Raiders maybe was a better film. But then I think that uh, Last Crusade just has so much heart and such a deep connection and, and explains so much about who Indy is that it's really hard for me to pick a favorite. Because like Raiders was the trendsetter. Raiders is, is super firing all cylinders. And like we mentioned, like you mentioned before, like how this movie went over budget and over, like and it went over schedule. And now it's a kind of a thing with Spielberg for a long time where Jaws went over schedule because of technical issues of it. Close Encounters went over budget and over time and over schedule. Um, 1941 did. And so in 1941 it was kind of a sobering effect for him because it was like his first kind of minor flop. And when he came to do Raiders, like George Lucas, his best friend is putting up the money. And so Spielberg really needed to be on his A game when he came to that. And that's why since then, for most of his movies, he's finished under budget and under schedule. Like Jurassic Park, as big as that movie is, under budget and under schedule. Mm-hmm. And oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And then with and like is because like I think it Raiders is perfect, but I think just an emotional attachment. Uh, because I've had a kind of like at least like my early part of my life, like I had a little bit of a, a strained relationship with my dad and how things played out. Him and I become not just father and son, we become best friends. And I just mirrored that. And especially in the moment where we, we think Indy is dead when he goes off the cliff from the tank. Yeah. And then when when uh, Henry does the double take and he embraces Indy, like, oh, I'm, I'm getting choked up just thinking about that. Yeah, I've seen that movie on Father's Day with my dad before. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> At Alamo, they, they showed it on Father's Day, and we were like, yeah, let's see that. It was kind of funny, because after the movie, I told I told my dad, I'm like, you know what? This movie kind of reminded me of you. And, and uh, he was like, well, what do you mean? It reminded me of my parents. And I was like, oh, he doesn't want to be Sean Connery. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to be the dad, even though he is. I think we all kind of – and it's told from the perspective of Indy, so – you know, you're you're putting yourself in indie shoes. Everybody knows what it's like to be uh, with their dad and the the dad acting like a dad, a total dad, the whole movie. But you're right, there there is that that disconnect, and I think that they they wrap that up and reconnect them in such a such a great way. Definitely. Um, yeah. After Crusade, uh, it's probably Saving Private Ryan, mm-hmm. due to just the visual nature of of the movie that he presented and in, in a realistic fashion and like how he kind of changed Hollywood again with how action movies are made with that. But I think like the fact that it is such an emotional story and that he pulls no punches with the, right. the details of it, much like how he did with Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember seeing that I saw Saving Private Ryan in theaters and I remember just walking out of it kind of shaken, you know, uh, I think it was the first movie. I was so young at the time that it was the first movie that I had ever seen that portrayed war that way. You know, I was used to seeing uh, like action movies where they show you war, but it's from like a fun perspective. I, you know, I wasn't really old enough to watch stuff like 
Apocalypse Now or Full Metal Jacket. So it was the first movie that I ever saw that treated the subject of war so darkly. Right. And I remember like how I first saw it is that uh, my sisters used to play on a travel soccer team and we're out of state. I think we we're actually maybe in Virginia or Georgia at this time. And it was, it was supposed to be they were playing on a Saturday and it rained out. And so the five of us, my mom, my dad, my two sisters and I are stuck in our hotel room. So we rented same proper Ryan off pay-per-view and the opening scene when we have, we don't know is old private Ryan walking through the uh, cemetery in, in France. And I just, I saw so much of my granddad in that because he was a world war two vet and he dressed in the exact same fashion. And so what, wow. and whenever I watch that, I always think of that. And I like, that's another one. I just immediately get choked up when he falls to his knees. And he's looking at the graves. And you're like, you're already crying five minutes into the movie. And you're like, you haven't gotten to the truly <laughs> horrific stuff. Oh, that's, that's the mark of a good film that can really make you feel a deep connection. That's, that's so important to me. And I think it's so important to most people when they're picking their favorite films. Definitely. And yes, that was number four. Uh, number three, um, it was, it's uh, Jurassic Park. Nice. Because it's just, it's one of those movies I saw when I was a kid that made me want to be a filmmaker. And just want it. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah, it's just like one of those like you. You want. You, I sat as as I learned how to speak again. Um, that watching that and having being affected in that way, and it's like it was something even as a kid, the same age that that Tim was in that movie. Um, like want to create something that has that effect on people. I want to be able to tell stories right. where uh, people can be in awe or in shock. And there was a great. Um, there's a, somebody made like a commercial. I think it was just like follow your dreams. And it's like showing Spielberg as a kid when he's playing with his toy, with his, um, his toy trains and how he progressed and it, it get, it goes along a little journey. And then we see him directing Jurassic Park and it cuts to another kid watching Jurassic Park for the first time. Like I identify with that kid so much. Oh, that's great. That's really awesome. Yeah. And then after I think number two is Jaws. And I think it's because it's like I, I spoilers for my uh, my podcast, the Anything Goes podcast. I, I did, but for episode ninety nine, we record in advance. Uh, we did our top fifteen favorite movie countdown, and my number nine position. It's a tie between Jaws and Jurassic Park for me. Yes, mm. I yes, I cheated a little bit. I, I admit that. Um, it's okay. It's okay. And so for like Jaws, I'm like I think it's because the the restraint that or the constraints that. Spielberg had in making that movie and the speed the the, the the third act with them on the on the opening scene on the open scene the three different personalities and I love how when one of my favorite moments is when obviously Robert Shaw has the Indianapolis speech and then finally when Richard Dreyfuss is in the cage trying to fight Jaws and how tense right. that scene is no 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 that's probably that's probably my favorite actually of Spielberg's movies is Jaws really Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just I don't know. I just really think there's there's just something so perfect about how simple the plot is, and yet how the way that you, it keeps you engaged when it's essentially a monster movie, and that's not a genre that I really like that much. But it just stands out. Um, it's so suspenseful. It's so thrilling, and it's just you know the actors are so good in it. Um, it just I don't know. I think it's it's one of my favorite films of his if not my favorite nice and yeah. i mean like there's a, there is a screenwriting guru called his name was blake snyder and he had like he was like he wrote a book called 
Save the Cat, the last book of screenwriting you'll ever need, and like have like a template of how Hollywood movies are made. And he also had a template of like mm-hmm. the 10 genres that are made, and one of them is called Monster in the House. And movies that were prime examples of that were like Halloween, Jaws, and Alien, and like how mm-hmm. they follow a very similar vein of how the story is being told. And I just find funny, like, you're not a huge, like, Monster House movie, but Jaws is something you're, you're really drawn to. I don't know if it's just the story itself or how Spielberg uh, visually tells it. I think I think it's the visuals mainly, but then also the acting um, and the pace of the movie. Um, it definitely, I think my fear of sharks plays into it a little bit. <laughs> I'm, like, weirdly afraid of sharks, um, even though I'm, like, nowhere near an ocean. It's just... Something you won't find me doing a whole lot is being in the ocean. So you're afraid. You, uh, you have you ever swam in the ocean? I must ask. Yes, yes, I have, but I try to stay relatively shallow. I'm looking for a fin. You know, I've got my wits about me. I don't stray too far in. Not a fan of snorkeling. Um, yeah, sea creatures are kind of scary. That's that's understandable. I mean, like one of my fears <laughs> in life, like is. I almost drowned when I, was, when I was a little kid. So one of my fears is being is drowning and being attacked in water. Yeah. I've weirdly had dreams about it, like more than actually being afraid when I'm awake because I've had bad dreams about it. It's like you're afraid of something you haven't really experienced, but because you experienced it in a dream, it terrifies you. And I don't really know where that comes from. I, I don't remember when I first saw Jaws, but I think that I saw it uh, when I was older than – when I had these dreams. So I, you know, I don't know where they come from. There's probably like some dream book or some therapist that can explain it to me, <laughs> but, um, but it's just like one of those random things, you know? Yeah. But I, I think it plays a part. I mean, like if you were talking to Freud, like I'm afraid of sharks, it has to do with your mother. I don't know if that's right, sir. I don't know if everything has to do with the mother, <laughs> but okay, we'll go yeah. with that. <laughs> yeah. Somebody has an answer. I don't know. I think, I think sea creatures are just scary. That's just how it is. <laughs> so wait, like, I know total tangent. Like, uh, how are you going to handle Aquaman? That's what my question is because we know there's going to be <laughs> there's going to be sea monsters in that. Well, you know he's in control, um, and I trust him. And you know, I, I, it's less scary because I'm not going to be seeing a lot of people in peril. But like, even in like, uh, what was it, Pirates of the Caribbean, like the first one when they show you the kraken, they're like, release the kraken. Um, that part looks terrifying to me. And I'm like, I know it's not real, but just the thought of a giant octopus in the ocean is just, that's no bueno. All right, then. <laughs> this is very enlightening <laughs> for me right here. So. Yeah. Right? I'm sharing some some deep stuff with you guys, my fear of krakens and, and sharks. Well, I think you should be okay with krakens-wise. <laughs> sharks are. Yeah, yeah, I, I should be. That's, sharks are, that's more possible. Yeah. That's more possible. Uh, all right, my number one is E.T., the extraterrestrial. And the reason being is that like, I explained it on my show and I explained it elsewhere, but there was a time in my in, during high school when I kind of rediscovered that in a time when I really needed somebody to be there. Like my closest friend, like he had kind of like, we kind of like kind of drifted apart. There's a lot of stuff in my family that was like tearing the house apart. And this movie about a kid finding a best friend who was able to find solace in and be there for him. And even despite the fact like he knows that he has to leave and says, I will always be there is something that I really need and have always resonated with. And that's why like it's like the ending, like there's two movie endings that will always make me cry. It's like that and the scene like from Good Will Hunting, where it says when Robin Williams says it's not your fault to Matt Damon, both times I'm like, it's Niagara Falls with my eyes when it comes to those. 
Oh, yeah, I love E.T. I, I, I'd probably put that at number two. Um, my connection to E.T. is just that, you know, when I was growing up, I remember seeing it a lot. I even had, I don't know if I still have it, but in my, when I lived with my dad, I had this vintage poster that I bought from like um, a store that we used to have in Dallas called Remember When that just sold like movie memorabilia. And they had this like plastic pop out poster with E.T. on it holding like a, a flower vase and it, it said like Pepsi on it. And it was like from that time. And I, I saw it as like a teenager and I was like, I have to own this. It was, I think E.T. is like one of the first movies like that, that I saw a lot as a child. And then as I got older, I just attached so much good feelings and so much of like the eighties to it. You know, um, I remember going to Universal Studios and, and, and writing the E.T. ride and E.T. saying your name. And I just had such a big connection with that that kind of followed me i kind of rediscovered it as a teenager and it's just since then has stuck with me i love that that's your number one though thank you and i think you have the patience of a saint to wait on the line for the et ride because it's notoriously <laughs> like even like the few times i've been to universal I'm like i do not have the patience to do this <laughs> yeah 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 well i mean i think you could say that for like the entire theme park that's but... <laughs> fair i mean like I, I, yeah. was, I was lucky enough to be able to see ride jaws for the second time i like i rode the jaws ride when i was like six years old and mm -hmm. like i remember because jaws popped up on my side of the boat and i closed my eyes because i was terrified and since i was so close to the shark coming out of the water i got soaked with water and all, mm -hmm. I close my eyes. I, I get silver water. I hear, I feel the heat from the fire. I hear like the tour guy fire off the flare gun to set it away. I open my eyes when the tour rides over and I'm like, okay, I'm safe. We're fine here. And then when I saw it, oh, I wrote it again when I was 18 before they closed down the ride. I was so happy I got a chance to do that. Despite the fact that I did Animal Kingdom, Epcot and Universal at night all in the same day. So I was pretty much, oh I, yeah, I was shot by the time we got on the ride. Like I was sitting on the jaws, but like, oh, the shark's coming. Yay, it'll eat me. I'll be able to sleep now. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. I was like, does that ride still exist? I didn't know it was it was no more. Yeah, I forget what the, I forget, Yeah, they've gotten rid of that. They've gotten rid of that. They got rid of the T2 3D ride. They got rid of the Back to the Future ride. Oh, that hurts. Oh my gosh. There's there's a picture of me standing next to DeLorean at 12 years old looking super awkward. <laughs> Um, that I just loved. I, I was so obsessed with those movies. And and those are like the two biggest things I remember about going Universal is, uh, well, I guess three is, you know, Jaws, uh, Back to the Future, and uh, E.T. So the, Most of the rides do exist on YouTube. People have done video recordings of that. Okay, I'm going to check that out. Yeah. <laughs> and just go down memory lane. <laughs> if I get like a message later on, like, yes, like, uh, I bought so much stuff, like E.T. memorabilia off eBay, like, you, you, you busted <laughs> my chops by buying so much of, uh, what was it, uh, of Riverdale, because you found a sale. Like, I, I'm not going to get responsibility yeah, yeah. of that, okay? I'm just saying. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's technically your fault. I do have a an E.T. bank. It's like a ceramic, hideous-looking bank that I think I got in, like, Mexico, um, so it's not like really E.T. It just sort of looks like him. Um, I have like an E.T. stuffed animal. I have a shirt that I can't throw away uh, that says Universal. And it was from when I was like a teenager. Like pretty sure it doesn't fit. Um, it, I think it's for a child. <laughs> <laughs> but but it has like E.T. on it. And I just can't I can't part with it. So I already kind of and then I have that poster. So it's kind of 
you know, it's already pretty bad. If you have to go to like an 80s night, just wear the t-shirt or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. Well, let me uh, proceed to our last two questions here. And we may, as we make uh, it to 90 minutes, like me back. Yeah. That way. <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. Uh, what keeps you coming back to this movie? The fact that it is so suspenseful on such a simple premise and that I like, cause all drama is conflict and this is like, it's, is narrowed down to such a, a simple form. Not saying the movie, like movie is simple, but it's not like, it's not like redundant or just like it's basic in a way because it is done in such a flashy fashion. Wow. I did mm-hmm. not mean to be illiterate that way. Um, that I just find it to be highly addicting. Right. I, I think there's something to be said for, you know, being such a simple plot, but being so successful with how how it plays out. Um, and, and I agree with you. I think that's something that is going to make me return to this movie as well, because I like seeing the progression where Steven Spielberg came from. And you definitely can see how right away just the potential that he had from this first film. It's just really impressive what he was able to do on a small budget. And uh, I, I like movies like this where there's not a lot of locations. There's not, uh, you know, there's no CG, <laughs> especially back then, because yeah. uh, there wasn't any. But um, but there's no, there's not a lot. It's not effects heavy. Um, and there's not, you know, there's one big actor in it, uh, but it's not like a star-studded cast. It's not writing on the stuff that we think of when we think of uh, like a popcorn flick. Uh, but it's so impressive with what it does have. And the fact that it has all that restraints is sort of what makes it exciting. Because I think that if it did have all these big names and if it did have a big budget and if it did have all those effects, I think that would draw away from the story because the story is so simple and it needs to be told this way. I agree. And like you can't have like simple stories told with like big actors. Um, like most recently, A Quiet Place is done. Like, yeah, we have two big names with Emily Blunt and John Krasinski, mm-hmm. but it's told in a, it, but it has a very simple plot and have them deal with it. But I feel like you're right. If you have somebody that's relatively um, unknown to a mass audience put into a very tense situation, you are immediately gravitate to that person. And you're like, okay, I can identify with this person because they're so everyday and um, I don't want to say mundane or anything like that, but it's something that's very relatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, what what would you say to someone that's never seen this movie before? Like, how do you pitch it? It's about a mild uh, businessman going across the desert for a trip, but is terrorized by a madman with an 18-wheeler. That That's perfect. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, it's pretty much a masterclass in suspense. It's, like you mentioned earlier, very Hitchcock. Um, and I just think that if you like films like that, that build on suspense and, and drama, that this is something that you need to see because you, you need to see where it, it's a classic and it's something that you need to have in your, in your library that you can refer back to, especially if you're interested in making film and, and also just if you're a film lover, I think it's, I'm, I think it's crazy that I hadn't seen it till now. I knew that question was coming. So before we were recording, I, I did think of that answer in, in, in advance, but I was like, I, I know Lisa's going to ask me that question. I think I should have something. I, I should have something ready. <laughs> no worries, no worries. I'm glad. I'm glad you did. It was excellent. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tim. Uh, go ahead and 
plug your podcast, man. You know, where can people find you? Where can they listen? Uh, you can. I have two podcasts now. Uh, my main show, the Anything Goes Podcast, can be found on SoundCloud.com and on iTunes. Uh, we talk about uh, a cornucopia of geek and pop culture uh, material. We're approaching episode 100. And, wow. Yeah. And so we have episodes uh, 98 through 100 are already planned out. 99 is already recorded, like I mentioned before. Um, mm-hmm. And it's my other show, Please Rewind, as part of the RF4RM podcast network, along with Holy Badcast and Disorder. Please Rewind, we talk about movies and usually around anniversaries of it. So the most recent mm-hmm. episode that we just, cool. yeah, the most episode, the most recent episode we just dropped is about Daisy and Fuse, where myself, Jamie Julie, and Guy Milks babble on about. Richard Linklater's um, Ode to Just Slacker Life in 1976. Perfect. Amazing. Well, I, I do want to give a shout out, you know, if, if you're interested in uh, car movies, um, because you're listening to this one, I assume you probably are. Uh, I really liked your episode on Christine. I kept badgering you with constant comments on it, like long after it came out. <laughs> But uh, but I just I really enjoyed that episode. I mean, it, it, it so got annoying every time I opened Twitter. I'm like, oh my god, Lisa's commenting about it again. I mean, jeez, lady, <laughs> I know it was enjoyable, but come on. I'm like, I'm listening to the music now. I'm I'm uh, I'm thinking about it. It's like I don't know why. I just got on such a kick after I after I heard that episode. So g- kudos to you. Thank you. Actually, I really appreciate it. I'm glad you enjoyed that yeah. episode. For sure. Well, um, you know, you mentioned your your podcast. Where can they listen to it? And also, how, how can they contact you on social media? Uh, if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at Timothy Rooney 2 my Instagram at TRooney1012. And like I mentioned before, I'm a filmmaker first and foremost. My uh, YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions, as if you're going through something. Uh, my latest video is actually a commercial for a mutual friend of ours. I made a commercial for the Suicide Squadcast Network as part of their fan art competition. So if you just look up the Suicide Squadcast commercial, you'll probably find that. In uh, my podcast, you can listen to uh, both through iTunes. And if you want to follow the Please Rewind podcast and all the other shows, go to rf4rm.com. You can find all the shows and all their episodes are there. It's easy. It's a one-stop uh, place for all those podcasts. That's excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tim, and I uh, hope to, to have you back soon. Uh, thank you so much, and I was I was really uh, excited that you wanted to talk about this movie with me. Awesome. See you next time. See ya. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening, um, and thanks again, Tim, for stepping up and helping me out on this week's episode. Really enjoyed having you back, so thanks again. Um, if you guys have any feedback on this episode or any others, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter under AYA Lisa Cosplay. I'm also on Instagram under AYA and as a Nancy AMI Lisa. And I'm in our closed Facebook group called I Love That Movie. The group is closed, but if you just send a request, I'll add you. It's just a safe space uh, for movie lovers to discuss their favorite films, judgment-free. My only rule is keep it positive. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show. If you leave a positive review on iTunes, you will be entered to win a $20 gift card to a movie theater chain of your choice. Right now, I believe we are at 20 reviews, and I will draw again once we get to 30, so please leave one today. Thanks again, guys, and I look forward to hearing from you.